This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Seth. Hi, I'm Paul. And we're going to be talking about Harry Harrison's 1966 novel, Make Room, Make Room, uh, turned into the 1973 movie, Soylent Green. And I saw the movie many times. Uh, never read the book before. Is this the first read for you guys? I actually, yeah. I read the book before I saw the movie years ago. Oh. I, I would say that you're unique in that respect. Yeah, this is only the second Harrison I've read. I read uh, The Automatic Detective, which is uh, about a robot detective. It, it feels remarkably similar to this book, although it's a little less serious. Uh, I've never even heard of that one. I've read some Harry Harrison, but not that one. Uh, when did, is, is that a later book? I'm not sure when it was published, actually. I'll have to look that up. Hmm. Um, I've read uh, the Stainless Steel Rat books, mm-hmm. uh, at least most of them, <laughs> um, as audiobooks, and they're hilarious and really fun. And he is one of those science fiction writers who doesn't really know anything about science, but that's okay. He likes robots, and he he likes setting things in the future, and he has a certain stylistic, funny attitude that, uh, I, I mean, this is almost a comedy. It's not. It's quite a tragedy, I think. But it, you could almost tell that it was written by a comedian sort of guy. And, and, yeah. yet, and yet, go ahead, sir. Oh, I was just looking up Automatic Detective, and the reason you haven't heard of it is because it's by a later author named Ailey Martinez, but it has such a oh, yes, similar I tone. Oh, yeah, I knew about that. <laughs> it, uh, it, 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 it felt kind of, you know, it's future. It had kind of a comedic, comedic tone to it. And I was really, I was thinking of it strongly when I was reading this. Hmm. Uh, well, he's probably, he's, he's like, uh, he's not Douglas Adams in that he's not that kind of a jokester. He's a little no. bit more like Sheckley, um, although Sheckley's, his humor is kind of, uh, uh, different as well. But I, I, I do find Harry Harrison quite humorous. But this is not a, a joke book. No. <laughs> you know? I don't think there is any actual comedy, but the way the, it is tragedy, I guess, the flip side of that. It's pretty horrible. I was re-listening to it, and uh, just this, I was listening to the scene where the 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 bodyguard comes back with a family <laughs> yeah. who want to move into the house, and it's like, this is the most horrible thing that could ever happen to a human being. <laughs> it's just so awful. You know, you gotta, oh. gotta squeeze in and make room. Um, Okay, we're going off on a tangent already. Have either of you read the J.G. Ballard story by Lenium? Uh, no, no, but I, I've seen it listed as one of the stories that has stuff like this. It's, it, it's uh, it, it, too much, it, too many people. Yeah, story, and, and that and that uh, story, the, the the scene you just mentioned with the with the bodyguard coming to move the family in to. De- to basically take that space. Bilenium is all about that, where basically people are just cramming into smaller and smaller spaces. They find a tiny hidden space of that had then been divided in the room, and it's just like, oh, we can stretch our arms out. And <laughs> another character talks about that that the uh, proprietor of the tenant building is going to let out a closet for somebody to live in, and how could someone do that? But they just keep dividing rooms up more and more, and 
it's yeah, it, it, it's 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 this novel concentrated down to a pure disturbing Ballard story where they just focus on the whole idea of space. They don't go into the other problems that this novel goes into, but it's just the idea of living space. It's it's the most crystalline, perfect distillation of that strand of this novel and, and of the mm-hmm. movie. Um, now, Seth, are you saying you've never seen Soylent Green? I've never seen Soylent Green. Oh, but spoilers, I do, I do know it's people. I do know it's people. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that I don't think that you can live the rest of your life without at least listening to the 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 movie. Oh yeah, um, I'll I'll watch it for sure. It's it's uh, incredibly. I'm not a music guy, but I think uh, the use of music in that is it's it's arguable, and I know this is going to be very arguable by many people. I'm not a big Charlton Heston politics fan. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but. He made a lot of science fiction movies. He's kind of like Will Smith of the 1960s and 70s. That's a good well, he was in the Omega Man. That's a good good comparison. Planet of the Apes, the Omega Man, Soylent Green. Yeah, and they're good movies. I mean, I, you know, I can't say Charlton Heston's the most handsome man ever. He's not the best actor ever. But he managed to pick a few good movies. Now, they look completely dated. I mean, the special effects, all blah, 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 you know, not great. Um, but actually, Soylent Green's plot, I think, is an improvement over the novel in that it takes uh, something that I think is just around the corner. It's going to happen next season. Right? After this, this is set in the year 1999, um, and we follow... Every uh, a couple of people in the city for that year, and it's just getting worse and worse. So the inevitable next thing to do, right, is to do what they do in Soylent Green, which is you know, okay, got us, we gotta deal with this problem. There's too many people. There's not enough food. Gotta get your protein. And I think it, 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 it absolutely organically, not even a joke there. Um, <laughs> it, it grows out, it grows out of the book. I, I think that's very rare. I, I had, I had a theory that you could act, that Soylent Green isn't so much an adaptation of the book so much as it's a quasi sequel to the book because it is set 23 yes. years later. The char- so it most is. of the character names are different. The, the, the plot is, much more streamlined in the movie. Mm-hmm. So, they collapsed uh, two characters or two groups together to make the the you know in the in the book we've got the Billy Chung I think yep. is his yeah. name. Um, he is combined with that family, right? That uh, we find out in the movie are living in a car, um, <laughs> and the and that you know the the burglary uh, turned murder is, you know, for hire rather than by accident. So, but the thing is, is um, how come they didn't move into that expensive building? That's that's the question. Why didn't that rich rich building have to have those horrible people living in it? Because they have the money? Yeah. Yeah, but they, so is it, is the cop in public housing too? Is our main character, Andy, in public housing? Oh, uh, what? Well- yeah, but given given how uh, crapsack it is, yeah, yeah, I guess. 
Because in the in the novel, he moves out of police barracks into that building. So right. yeah, it's it's not much of a step up. No, but um, compared to living with those horrible people, um, oh god. Yeah, I'm surprised that he that he won't. I mean, it's a, behind the time frame now. They won't move back to the barracks because he can't stay in there with that horrible, well, horrible take family. His girlfriend to the yeah. barracks. So. Well, he lost it. He loses his girlfriend. Yep. Yeah, that's one of the tragedies. It's a pretty horrible tragedy. Um, yeah, this is a very depressing book, and I would guess uh, if you had read this at the time, 1966, I guess, um, you would be. Uh, even more depressed because 1999 is still not here. Yeah. And I mean, I think, I don't think we've over, we've avoided their trap. I think we're just not there yet. And, uh, you know, since 1966, China's come up with its one child policy. Yeah. Which I don't see happening in North America, but also we don't seem to be needing that in North America. Except it, here in the, the south where I live. Oh, really? Are they booming? Well, I don't know if it's booming, but just anecdotally, I, I know people, you know, one of my brothers has ten kids, for example. So, you know, Holy it's, it's definitely, well, <laughs> could definitely Holy yeah, room, room for improvement, for sure. But, um, yeah, overall, America's better the, off. Did you see the tweet I sent you guys before the podcast? About uh, tilapia? Yeah, that was very... Oh, cliche. yeah. Okay, so tilapia is mentioned in the book. I, I hadn't heard mm-hmm. of tilapia until a couple years ago. That's and then good. I was like, okay. uh, have you have you eaten one? Because I've never eaten one. Oh, they're really good. They're, they're tender and they're not super fishy. And Yeah. Okay. Well, my mom was telling me that she had had one and, and it didn't taste very good. It, she said it. Is to like dirt or something. <laughs> it was <laughs> really terrible. Um, now really I was reading dirt in this novel. <laughs> I was reading all about the uh, the fish, and I was wondering why you know it was specifically called out in a book where there's a population shortage. Um, and uh, in reading about it, I understand why. So a lot of fish that we eat are carnivores; they eat other fish, right? But uh, tilapia are uh, plant eaters, so they eat algae, they eat seagrass, they eat whatever. Oh, that's cool. Around. They're also um, freshwater fish, generally. Um, so they most of them seem to come from the Nile uh, or in Israel area, right, in the waters there. Um, apparently, they've been introduced into the Salton Sea, which is uh, super salty, um, and they can survive there. They th- Their main problem is they... They don't do well in cool temperatures, um, so you wouldn't see them up here in Minnesota, uh, yeah, <laughs> or in you know, the waters off of Vancouver, right? Because first of all, it's salt water, and second of all, um, it's too cold up here. But um, not when the the temperature goes up every year, right? They're having a heat wave. They specifically call out global warming in this book. Well, well, oh yeah, yes, and well, the movie does that more than the book. The movie makes it clear that global warming in 2022 has gone completely rampant because they, because he makes it, he throws away a line that it's a heat wave all year long. Where in the book, it does get cold. They, they do, they, they, they have a cold winter. They, they, they have a cold winter. They, there's global warming, but it's not as severe as in the movie where it's just like, okay, we're going to really hit you over the head and it's going to be 
summer all year long. Well, it's six, 66 to 73, a lot's happening. I was looking at the overpopulation uh, uh, thread on the Internet Speculative Fiction Database, which is one of my favorite websites to visit, and it shows, you know, the themes of overpopulation showing up. Uh, so there's a couple books in the early 60s, there's one in the late 50s, and then 1966, 67, 67, 67, 68, 68, 71, 72, 74, wow. right? And then it starts dropping off 82, 86, 87, 90, 2000, 2005, and then it's done, right? So the overpopulation thing is really hitting people in, in the 60s. And that's also the time when, you know, environment starts showing up. Now, this book is less about the environment than uh, most people think. Or, no, it's more about the environment than most people think. Yeah, there was a pesticides reference that I thought was a indirect shout-out to uh, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, but there was one one mention of pesticides killing off the... Yeah. Yeah. They they talk about the farms, fortress farms and the... uh, People upstate bombing aqueducts so they can keep the water from themselves. So that there's a yeah. much bigger story going on, right? Than just this New York, uh, you know, murder trail. Um, and why is it? Why are there 23 million people in a city that you know, in our time, has you know nine million or whatever? Um, what's that push? Well, we know one of them is a piece of history that didn't exactly happen where. Where for the people of Formosa, aka Taiwan, invade uh, China, China unsuccessfully. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that that's something that subsequently, uh, you know, off. But on the other hand, you know, the Vietnamese boat people is actually kind of a, a version of that. That's yeah. There's no yeah, there's no mention of that in this timeline. So instead of getting the Vietnam War, we got a we got a Taiwan China War. And just mm-hmm. got a different set of refugees, and most of those in New York rather than in other places. Like, like a lot of the well, Hmong, for example, after Vietnam, wound up in Minnesota of all places. Well, one, oh, wow. one of the one of the interesting things, though, is that a lot of the Vietnamese folk people, in fact, most of them, were not actually uh, ethnically Vietnamese; they were Chinese. And in supporting, uh, the, being the minority, supporting. Uh, the Americans, they are turned into refugees, uh, ethnically. So, you know, they speak Vietnamese, but they're from a previous empires, you know, pushed down into other mm. territories. So, uh, I mean, that's not exactly on topic, but <laughs> it's, it, it's just interesting that, uh, the global forces that are at play in our world are actually at play in this book as well. Mm-hmm. So even though it is, you know, Harry Harrison is not I think I sent you guys a review somebody had written. Yeah. I said, this is a science fiction novel. The only thing that's in it that has science fiction is a new piece of barbed wire. And I'm like, that is a good point. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the, but on the other hand, what's their, like, they have nothing, right? The, the, their hovercrafts don't even work anymore. It, it, there's, a, there's a serious theme of resource depletion and things breaking down, both in the movie and in the novel. It's clear that they're just patching up stuff to keep things going again. I mean, there's no things like cell phones or anything like that, but I can imagine if there were in this world that they would just be trying to just cannibalize old ones to keep the older ones just running. I mean, it's just, it's, yeah. it's, just such, it's such a rundown 
rundown world. It it that it's there's no new technology, but there's just a theme of okay, we're we're running out of stuff so rapidly that we have to cannibalize everything. And in the movie, that's made exist by cannibalizing humanity. Yeah, I, 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 oh, sorry, go for it. Sorry. It reminded me a little bit of you, me, and Jenny read uh, on the beach a year or two ago, and the mm-hmm. the state of technology. And this reminded me of that, and that there's there's no uh, mechanically powered vehicles anymore, hardly, except for the choppers. And uh, like Paul said, you know, the hovercrafts are starting to go down, and there's there's everything is just starting to the society is really crumbling. The, the difference is that on the beach, even though the, the, the world is, is literally ending and everyone's, everyone's dying. There's that novel is kind of characterized by a sense of acceptance. Whereas this is characterized by a sense of desperation. Yeah. Um, I, I think it, everything that's good about, uh, sort of the environmental, uh, worry that's going on in the book is is also good in the movie and i i really do recommend you watch it seth because there is a sense of like the despair that saul has in the book um is magnified i think in movie and with the scene in the euthanasia center mm-hmm. um is so powerful in that you know if if those lay if those if that that mother and the father and those kids moved into my apartment, I would seriously consider going to the youth center. <laughs> I guess yeah. that they, they don't really have a name for it there uh, in the, in the movie. He says he's going home in the movie. Um, but if you had the opportunity to uh, flee to, uh, you know, bright sunlit uplands with, uh, with, you know, actual nature still around and, you know, wild animals and fields of green, uh, even if it is for uh, for your death. Yeah, uh, twenty minutes before your death, I, I'm I'm there. Sorry, <laughs> I, I would not want to live with that family. And this ties into Logan's Run. Have either you read slash seen the mo- read the book, seen the movie? Mm-hmm. I've I've seen the yeah. movie. I haven't read the book. Yeah, you've you've seen the movie, but haven't seen it. Yeah. Yeah, only uh, on the po- I was talking on another podcast I'm a co-host of, and only Dave and I had actually read the book, but everyone had seen the movie as part of the podcast. And that again, the movie is much more explicit about how things are just breaking down, and it. it, it it's a, again about algae collection. Well, well, right? well, there's there's a scene. Remember the scene in the movie with Box, and he says, "Fish, plankton, hmm. protein from the sea." <laughs> And he's and he says it stopped coming, so he starts freezing the people coming through. So there's almost an implication that the people he's freezing are going to be turned into food for the people in the AI in, in the in the in the book it's in the movie. It's like, and the world outside is collapsing, crumbling, and the 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 boat domes get destroyed at the end. It's it's a it's a different kind of crap sack future. It's I, I think the phrase is crap saccharin because everything looks all right. At first glance, mm. but yeah, everyone's dying at the, everyone's getting killed off at thirty, or getting shot by runners, or and things are slowly breaking down because no one's building anything. Because so in that case, it's the computer who's the bad. The guy. The computer right? is the bad guy in both the book and the movie. In the book, the the book is not just one city; the entire world's controlled by the Thinker, which is set underneath oh, wow. Crazy Horse Mountain in South Dakota. Uh, they actually finished. They actually finished the sculpture in the book. in the In the real world, the sculpture is still incomplete. But, but right. yeah, they basically 
And Sanctuary does exist in the book, but not in the movie. Sanctuary is actually a space station around Mars. So they basically oh. get off of Earth. Yeah, but there's a bunch of sequels, too. There are, right? there are two sequels where they come back and things get even worse. Yeah. It, those books are hard um, to find. That, They're that way out of print. next year. What's that? Yeah. Uh, it came out the next year, 1967. Um, but it deals with a lot of the similar themes. It deals with them in a different yeah. way. Um, so in the book that we've just read, uh, Make Room, Make Room, who's the bad guy? Well, that, that's the funny, funny yeah, thing. Beginning. That, 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 that's the funny thing, because everyone's a, everyone's a uh, victim. It's a victim. us. Yeah, it's, 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 we're, yeah, we're all yeah. collective victims and perpetrators of our aggression. The movie gives us a bad guy, which I thought was interesting. In the book, it's just a random accident, where in the movie, it's an, it's an explicit assassination. I don't think there is a bad guy in the movie either. Um, I think I think that... that it's interesting because I think it's the same thing. But one of the, one of the things is, you know, as a book, this this if you took the book and just moved turned it into a movie, I don't think it'd be a very good movie because it lacks sort of that Hollywood element of yeah. you know finding and sticking to a bad guy. But the same bad guy is at work. I think it's just you know it's a, a few years down the road. It's the next season when one of the things that's mentioned in the book that I think is really interesting is um, they've got, they mention a, a nuclear-powered submarine that goes in the sea and eats plankton, right? Collects plankton mm-hmm. in, it, like, one of the two or three whales that are left. Yeah, they say, like, three whales <laughs> like, are left, like, yeah. Right? So, in the, mo- in the, in the book, they're, they're down to eating plankton. And I think this goes back to Harry Harrison picking out particularly, other than, you know, Wheat, what are they? Weed, weed crackers. crackers. Oh. Weed crackers. Are they wheat or weed? weed? I heard weed. Weed crackers. Weed oh crackers, my God. Yeah. We're eating fucking seaweed. Yeah. Is, Basically seaweed crackers. We're eating weed, right? I, I don't know if they're seaweed. I, I think they're, I think they're side of the road. No, weed. I think they're seaweed because I think I, I get the feeling in, in this world. I mean, we, we do, we do see them buy, we do see, uh, the rich people buy some food, but it's only for the rich. The movie makes it even more explicit, but yes, it does very well. It's, it's, I it's think. A, it, 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 there is still cultivation and stuff, but that's only the rich can afford. It. It's all disposable, right? Yeah. So we're we're down to feeding everybody the the most basic nutrients we can. So the tilapia is a symbol, I think, of that because see, as top predators, right? We other animals is the idea. Yeah. <laughs> we also eat uh, plants occasionally to supplement that uh, in our, you know, we eat a hamburger. Oh, it's, yeah, it's got a little bit of ketchup in there, which is, you know, mostly sugar. And, it, yeah, it has a piece of lettuce in there. Yeah. And there's the bun with grain. But mainly, it's a burger, right? It has meat in it. And then, okay, well, that cow is eating uh, grass. That's fine. But when we're eating fish, we tend to eat in real life, we tend to eat the ones that are eating other fish or, you know, eating insects. But the tilapia, the reason it's a big fish today, and um, I've been reading a lot about, you know, what they're doing in China to feed their giant population with their new uh, technology of capitalism. And it's like the Wild West of um, capitalism in the yeah. late 19th century USA, right? Where... Um, 
everybody's trying to make a buck and make it cheaper. So they're adding you know, yeah. all sorts of chemicals to their food. And then, of course, they have to do the FDA right later on uh, in the States to try and <laughs> clamp down on the fact that everybody's getting poisoned by all yeah, the yeah, jungle, melamine, like meat yeah. inspection act and right. all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. Um, like you can buy eggs now in China that have no egg in them. And it's like, what the fuck are we eating here? Right. So tilapia is, is kind of a symbol. It's, it's a farmed fish, right? It's really easy to farm. They, they eat weeds. They eat, you know, everything. They don't compete with the other fish. If, if you put them in a river, they don't, uh, you know, hurt your harvest of, um, uh, other better fish, you know, tastier fish. Apparently, uh, Sati said tilapia is okay, but yeah. uh, I avoided them mostly because I don't know. I'm not <laughs> afraid of them, but uh, <laughs> they are, uh, one of the things that, that it said on the Wikipedia entries, they're aquatic chickens, right? They, they're, they breed fast. They eat whatever you give them and. So they're a perfect resource for that family who can go out and save up for a tilapia. But nobody says, hey, you know what? Let's have a fine meal of tilapia, right? It's it's not like you go to the finest restaurants and that's what they're serving. It'd be wild salmon if, if possible. But now, since the wild salmon populations around the world are crashing in our world, farm salmon is the replacement and they don't taste as good. Yeah, I thought a lot of this was really relevant... <laughs> Go ahead, Paul. Yeah, you know, like like cod, for example. You cod used to be very, very, very popular, and now it's dropped in popularity because we've over harvested the cod. And here in Minnesota, there are there are restrictions on a lot of lakes now about how much walleye you can take out because walleye are extremely popular, and they've just been overfished to death. Walleye is hmm. extremely tasty, by the way. If you if you've never wow. had, it. yeah, because it's just been so popular, it's just. It's just been, it's been uh, over harvested, and there's lots of conflicts over this because the Indian reservations have rights to harvest harvest walleye in any amount, and the, the lakes where they border have had drops in walleye population, and people say, well, that's not fair; they can do it, and it, it's just like oh, there's been year, there's been a couple of years where they said, nope, there's going to they've cut the season short, and said there's no season, or they. They've they've restricted how many you can take out, the size you can take out, just to try to get the populations from completely crashing. It's it's re, it's it's scary. It's just, I mean, we we've turned to seafood in a big way, and now we're just running out of seafood. Yeah, uh, the, there's the constant story about you know the shark fin soup. We're we're killing all the yeah, sharks in the sea. Yeah, just just for those, just for those fins. Yeah, <laughs> they're shark fin. It's not even you know particularly tasty. It's just it, it's sort of a culturally popular yeah. food um, because it's expensive. That drives people to yeah. hunt it. Then <laughs> they hunt it to get it, and then the, there's it becomes more and more expensive because every year there's less sharks. To, <laughs> to harvest. Um, so, are you guys familiar with the economic theory by of Garrett Hardin called the tragedy of the commons? I've, I, I, I've, no. I've vaguely, I've vaguely heard of the idea. Yeah, that if you have something held in common, it just gets ruined because no one, because everyone's right. over harvested and no one puts any effort into maintaining it. 
So, uh, yeah, when I took economics in university, this is like one of those ones that, you know, totally stuck in my head. And it's like, I think it's just because it is it's so ex- powerfully explanatory. Um, and it is often used to describe, uh, um, fish today, but it, it actually is, comes from, um, the common lands that used to be in, well, I, and are still in the United States. So last year, I think it was last year, you guys had that the, crazy, the Bundy um, stand yeah. That's yeah. right. You've got some government land and the guy apparently is not paying for uh, what grazing fees or something. Um, and that's pissing the U.S. government off. Um, but anybody could send out their, their, uh, cows onto that, that patch of land is the idea, right? But if they don't regulate it, the idea is that, that whatever, uh, grass that grows there that's being eaten will be overeaten. And then the land there will be more desert, desertified. It looked pretty desertified to me in the first <laughs> place, so I'm not sure how much worse it could get, but that, that was the idea is that, um, because the area was common and anybody could use it to any extent, it'd be like, um, kind of what the effect of having that family move in with Andy and, uh, and the, and Cheryl is like, right? They just, fucking ruin the apartment <laughs> yep. right the, the, he says he says uh okay he's got a he takes out the the chimney and covers it covers it up for n- no reason that i can tell covers it up and then starts burning coal in the apartment with no chimney and then the kids are shitting in the apartment and this is like no no <laughs> get the fuck out of my house right? no no nine no! nine nine well, well, the, the the novel does get a little heavy-handed when when uh, Saul goes into his uh, whole thing about birth control and overpopulation. And mm-hmm. well, that, I think that's he's pointing to the bad guy. It's yeah, us, right. And, right. And 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 the people moving into the apartment are the are the are the specific example of what Saul's talking about. He has he has his lecture before, yeah. before he dies about how we've screwed up the world with. And avoided having to deal with contraception or birth control or any other kind. And then we see the immediate impact of that when they, when Saul dies and they move in. Then we just see how it happens. So, to so how, what, what, I mean, I'm not going to say, you know, this book is, is saved us. Um, because, <laughs> no. uh, but I think, uh, other than Seth's, uh, Cousin or brother or whatever, <laughs> the ten kids. Um, I think that uh, contraceptives seem to have had some effect for the positive uh, for at least North America's population. Although I notice that the population of the world is only seven billion in this book, and we're at what six billion now. So population is still rising. Got- the, there, there are a lot of reasons why we haven't gone completely vertical in population like in this book or like in the movie and um, contraceptives are one reason. The other reason is economics. In general, as people's standard of living increases, their fertility and and, uh, how many children they have decrease. Yes, but... um, In general. 
I agree with that, but I think that that is underestimating the power of, you know, being able to purchase and have access to contraceptives. So if you are living in a hunter-gatherer society with no pharmacy, um, uh, going down to the local pharmacy to get your contraceptives are not unavailable as an option, right? Well, You're well, stuck with quote, unquote, the rhythm method and uh, um, abstinence, yeah. which is uh, proven to be very ineffective. Yeah, in abstinence goes against human nature. You can't ask people yeah. to be monks, uh, monks and nuns, no matter how much you want to. You're, you're fighting human nature. But it, even in the United States, I don't know about in Canada, there are still strong efforts to try to limit contraception. There. I mean, RU486 is still fought against because it's quote-unquote abortion pill, which is bullshit, but... That, that <laughs> yeah, I think the, the way that the that they deal with that in the book, where the way Saul is saying, you know, you're still you're still talking about it like it's a it's a, it's a killing babies. It's not killing babies. Could, saying that over and over again. <laughs> I think that that speech that he gives it's it is so still relevant to oh, yes. we need that we need yeah. that guy in uh you know up debating a whole bunch of idiots who are running for office because he doesn't let he doesn't concede the point right which is so often what happens is they we we can all agree that the environment's a problem and we're not going to do anything about it because it's too financially uh unfeasible this thing so yes we all agree <laughs> it's like no 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 no, no. You, no. You, you've screwed it up yeah. right so he 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 does such a good job uh, i mean it is uh i was uh, scott tweeted a picture of uh one of the covers of this book and it's got a coffin with that's yeah. also a sarcin tin that's right? a really mm -hmm. weird cover you tweeted it is very yeah. very sort of stylized cover not my favorite cover but on that tin is a cross, right? And I'm like, oh yeah, I guess. I mean, there is that thing. It's, it's, is it? Does it make religion the bad guy? And I would say that it doesn't. No, it just makes people the bad guy. And that religion is is one of the things that people do in their excuses to be bad. There's that religious fanatic guy, and he's mostly crazy through the whole thing. But I think the last thing he says right. is like, the last thing he says is like, "Can you imagine us being here in another thousand years?" Like, and you know, regardless of you know, I'm 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 not religious, but you you have to think, okay, he's he's onto something there because this is not oh, yes. sustainable. Peter, Peter was his name, which I thought was Peter, a nice course, yeah. Name. Extre yeah, extreme, extremely so. Yeah, he's just like we can't go so, on. He's an interesting character because uh, he. He's sort of, I think, yeah, you have to interpret what he's he's there for. I thought when when Billy shows up that he was going to get eaten. I thought Billy Billy was going to get eaten by Peter because <laughs> the way it was performed in the audiobook, the guy was like, he was almost rapaciously uh, Ooh, interested. You no, know, what are you doing here? Yeah. Why do you look so tasty? Sort of, sort of yeah, thing that was going on there. Has his hands um, out, food, yeah. So when we visit him, uh, yeah. So what function does he serve? Like he he doesn't have an analog in the book, other than there is the priest, right, who gets shot, 
Uh, there's the nuns in that in that church scene the, in the movie. Yeah, the priest. The priest. Priest has heard uh, heard uh, Big Mike's confe- uh, the guy's confession, so he knows the, he knows the truth of Soylent Green, but he's not. He's not a Jeremiah, to use another biblical term, like Peter is in the book, mm. like warning us against what's going on. The, the priest is just horrified and doesn't know what to do with the knowledge. The, 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 the movie, the movie is much more, much, much more removed from religion than the book ever is because, I mean, we do have the priest mm. and, but the, the only other mentions of religion, uh, we have, we have a soul talking about, talking to the other, the other books and he said, and that, that one late, the one, the one book who says, yeah, so "What God, Mister Roth? Where will we find him?" That's mm. just like, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" Is where I was thinking mm-hmm. about yeah. that. Yeah. Like, did you notice the actress was Spock's mom? Was it? I did not yeah. notice that. That's so cool. She's yeah. It was it was a, a good collection of old people. Um, this is one of the things you never see in Hollywood movies anymore. If you see an old person in a Hollywood movie, they, they're a famous Hollywood actor that just happens to be old now. And they are, you know, very exceptional. They just disappear. But I, I love how in the 70s, you know, uh, the main character of the movie has got to be in his late 40s at, at the very least. Charlton Heston was not a young man when he made that movie. Um, and uh, who's the... Who's the Saul character? That's Edward, uh, Edward G. Robinson. Last movie, right? So his last oh, movie, wow. and he dies. He dies like uh, ten days after filming or yeah. something. Um, he's a really old guy. Almost everybody in the movie's old, except for the the Cheryl character. Um, you know, maybe there's a couple babies here and there, but the thing is, is that is sort of a world we don't see anymore in film. Is everybody's young? There's not a lot of old guys unless it's you know the expendables or something <laughs> where they get the, well, they the, the uh, old folks home and give them machine yeah, guns the, the, the switch over in 70s films from interesting cinema to blockbusters and you can you can possibly lay this partially on the feet at, at star wars of just a change in american cinema in the mid 70s i mean soil and green and logan's run are kind of like the end of that from science fiction, maybe Logan's Run is the exact end because they took it so seriously. N- nobody over thirty. Well, yeah, right? you got Peter Peter Ustinov as the old man, and that's it. And yeah, yeah then, then we have to go young, 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 and endless chase for youth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe we're living in a combination of of both. Maybe well, we're, we're living in a <laughs> we're very trapped ourselves in a in a in a world like Logan's Run, um, if you're a movie actress, uh, you die at 30. Oh, and, God. Yeah, if you're an athlete, you're an athlete, you die at 30, basically, and your your career does, you know. So there's something to that. And that reminds me of uh, the novel Achilles' Choice by uh, Niven and Barnes, I think, um, where basically athletes compete in the Olympics, and you can take basically the equivalent of steroids to try and make yourself better, but they'll kill you if you don't get the <laughs> antidote. You only get the antidote if you win. So, wow. Yeah. So, yeah, okay. yeah, it's a very explicit live, live fast, die young sort of, sort of a theme in that book. So, at the end of uh, our book, Make Room, Make Room, uh, which it gets a little shout out from that priest in the, in the movie, by the way, 
Um, Seth, you watch for that. Yeah. Um, says I have to make yep. room. I have room for the for the mass, <laughs> and there's definitely a mass of people in there. <laughs> um, uh, so Andy is, you know, he's his girlfriend's moved out on him. Uh, it, I notice in the movie, you know, they all, he always goes back to her apartment. There's a lot of sexism happening in the movie that um, the, the, I think a lot the of people have problems. Yes. Furniture. Right. She's, you know, women, beautiful women are furniture, which, I mean, it's objectifying women in uh, a very strong yeah, way. Is there, is, is, there male, is there male furniture in this, in this world? It doesn't look like it. it and they, haven't, they haven't visited any any of those, but I would, wouldn't put it precluded. I think the important part to understand is that uh, even if you think that that's, you know, it's just 70s sexism, I don't think it necessarily need be that way because so many people are getting used in this movie, right? Everybody's getting used. And in the book, um, there's, there's, so, there's a little less of that. You know, the, it seems like the government is just trying to do its best. And one of the things that I think is interesting is when the, the lieutenant is giving his speech to the cops before they go out on riot control. Um, he says, you know, some of you ha- have any questions? Okay. And then he hears them talking and says, okay, I heard someone say political officer. <laughs> we don't have those in, in North America. That's a Soviet thing. Um, you know, I'm giving you the straight dope so you can go. Out. I-, I think he's telling the truth. Yeah, I do too. Uh, he seems to be, you know, giving a lot of background information that technically they don't need to do their job, but would help them with at least esprit de corps while they're beating the crap out of the people who have <laughs> no food and have nothing to drink. But there are politics entangled uh, up through this entire book and through the entire movie that our main character sure. gets caught in, whether he will or no. It's kind of, kind of a weird. Uh, but the corruption in the movie is it's like systemic, yeah. right? Everybody's yeah, everyone's doing, it. doing and that. Everyone's it, just trying to make a buck. Our hero is is completely corrupt, yeah, he, right? He loots the apartment. But he does it in sort of an open way. <laughs> and is it, and they're, not gonna, they're not going to try to stop him. And yeah, and then the lieutenant says, "What's for mother?" It's like, "What's my cut?" Yeah. So in the, I I get the sense that you know that's just. You know, it, 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 that's what happens when you don't have enough money to pay people. Um, if you go to third world countries, uh, the fact that you have to bribe everybody to get them to do their job, that's maybe it's like you shouldn't blame them for that because they're not getting paid enough. That's how they make their extra that's money. How they survive. Yeah. That's how they do it. They're not, they're not doing it and, for comfort. They're doing it just to get by every day. That's right. And, and since it's so widespread that even our hero, uh, is doing it, you know, stealing pencils from the rich guy's apartment. And all the food. <laughs> and all the food. <laughs> I mean, in the book. But, you know, they don't need it, and, right? Because the guy's dead. Well, in the book, I mean, Cheryl makes the food for for our hero in the book. Even steals the girl. Free, free. Yeah. He steals the furniture. <laughs> yeah, he steals, he steals the furniture. Yeah, yeah, there, 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 there's the, uh, the metaphor made explicit. But I mm-hmm. found it interesting Brings that... Brings beer, all that stuff. That the... That the book, it, the, what happens is basically just an accident. Everyone thinks it's got political motivations or deep, deep mm-hmm. reasons, and that's why they keep... And I think that's why he's pushed to do it, right? Is that 
in the, yeah. in the movie, it's made explicit that they, they know uh, this guy's powerful. Right. Um, so they investigate and they try and shut down the thing, and the opposite happens in right. the book. Right, where, where they yeah, go along. Yeah, they can go along over interpretation. Umberto Eco, who wrote Name of the Rose, wrote an essay on interpretation and over interpretation in literature, and I think it's just, I think that's a really cool thing that authors don't play with enough. I mean, as, as readers of literature, we're, we're always looking for the meaning of things and, and the symbolism mm-hmm. of things. There's that whole heart and, oh, it must be cuore. It's gotta be that guy. And sometimes stuff in life doesn't mean anything. It just, it just happens. And so that's, uh, yeah, I really I th- like think that. It's actually fits right in with the, the movie too. So uh, w- reading the book, I, I can just imagine the screenwriter saying, wow, powerful book, not, filmable not filmable we can't sell this because it doesn't have that hook right that i mean it, it this is soylent green is i mean if you've seen the trailer for it he goes what is the secret of soylent green and then it keeps asking that question throughout the trailer and so this is one of those ones where you know you go to the movie theater like uh i don't know signs or what what's the other m night Shyamalan movie uh the sixth sense and people are saying, oh, I heard this movie as a secret. And then you hear somebody talking about it in the lineup. Right. What what is the secret of of the of the story? Um, I think that that is made manifest by the film in a very powerful way that, you know, it's sort of it, unfortunately, the movie's become a kind of joke. It's become a meme. Yeah. Right. Everybody knows Soylent well, Green is made well, out of people. Well, I, I had a conversation with a co-worker. He's, he's not a genre fan the other day because I was telling him about about the movie and what I was listening to. And, and I asked him, have you ever seen Soylent Green? He says, I never heard of Soylent Green. And I bit my tongue and I thought, I thought really? I told him to go watch <laughs> Soylent Green. And I said, Soylent Green. I left it blank. Soylent Green is... Movie. Yeah, yeah, he, he he didn't immediately jump to it. So maybe there are people out there who don't know. It's kind of like Planet of the, well, there are. Planet of the Apes. I mean, does everyone know the ending of the Planet of the Apes? I do, and I've no. I think enough time. Uh, yeah, enough time has passed that we we have a generation of people. I mean, the thing is, is you can't get kids to watch old things. They just won't do it, right? They're, or read old things. The yeah. They'll watch the Avengers movie, and I say, you know, that's from. Uh, a 1960s uh, comic book, you know, it's old, but they don't see it that way. They see it as new. Um, but, I mean, that's the, sort of the argument for remakes is that uh, we're bringing the stories back to the people who wouldn't watch it otherwise. But I think, you know, if if you re-release some of these movies in the movie theater, uh, I'd go see them. There's a, there's a theater here uh, in Minneapolis that occasionally shows remake old movies. I mean, they did a whole month of just Hitchcock films. So I went to go see North by Northwest. I, I, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I think they just craving for a new, new insensate stuff. And there's some stuff I would like to see on a big screen. I mean, I, I mean, mm-hmm. it's, oh, yeah. North by Northwest would it, be a great it, film. It was, it was, it was oh, so excellent. I mean, it's one of, my, one of my favorite movies. And when I started like, yeah, I'm going to go see that. It's like, Oh my God, this is just, it's just a great experience on the screen. <laughs> I mean, like, like, say, Lords of Arabia or something like, or what? what oh, or Ben Hur. Yeah. yeah, I, I would kill Ben Hur. There you go, another Charlton. Yeah, Hester I know. Film. There you go, Charlton. Hester. I would kill to see those on the big screen again. And I think people, I think uh, people I, would go for it. I think that's right. You know, uh, 
like I say, I'm not a big fan of his politics. I I, I was reading about him. Oh, he's dead. He's been dead for years. Uh, makes sense, I guess. But um, even so, he made a lot of good movies. He was in a lot of good movies anyways. And the fact that he's not, you know, the most handsome man in the world and he's, you know, he's got bad politics doesn't make the movies any less good. Yeah, and I'd argue that being less handsome makes makes them more accessible and, you know, makes character more of an everyman. We were talking about younger characters in movies. I love how even even movies like uh, Lord of the Rings is a good example. I thought Aragorn was too young, and apparently they had an actor that was even younger, but I thought he was still... Mm. And Julie with me on this, because I know she loves uh, Viggo Mortensen, but he was just too... Uh, he tried to be rugged, but he was too kind of... Hollywood, for lack of a better word. And so yeah, I think they they there's a tendency to not cast people who are you know, unattractive or young. It's, yeah, it's 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 it's, it's, that, it's that running for youth. But just look, just looking at uh, Heston's filmography from those years. I mean, not we mentioned the Omega Man. We mentioned some other things. He was in the Three Musketeers, the Four Musketeers, a whole bunch of movies in genre. So it's mm-hmm. just like, and you don't see that. You don't see that sort of. You see, no, he is like a Will Smith. Yeah. Of, he, he I mean, years. Will Smith has made slightly more movies, and I would say most of them are far worse. I mean, in 1972, he was in four movies: Anthony and Cleopatra, The Special London Bridge, and Special Skyjack, The Cold of the Wild, 1973, Soylent Green, and Three Musketeers. Just like, it's like, it's like every, wow. it's everywhere. So yeah, this I mean, Soylent Green is almost like the capstone. To that. Then he starts going into uh, other other things and much less, much fewer movies every year. But well, I think that's not because he didn't want to work. I think it's because Hollywood d- sort of stopped selling old people in movies. You know, it became the thing. Maybe around the time Michael York uh, in 1973 makes. Or 1974, whatever it is, makes an, uh, 76. I can't remember. When is the movie version of uh, Logan's Run? 76. Logan's Run. 76. Yeah, okay, so 76, 76 is yeah. a weird, a weird year because now I'm going to tie into the Hugo's because everything must be about the Hugo's. The the <laughs> Hugo's for the Hugo's for that year, 1977, were for 1976 films, and Logan's Run was one of the films up for for best dramatic presentation along with uh, a couple of others. And no, and, and that award got no award. In that category, got no award that year. But mm. and and Star Wars had been released that year, so it wasn't eligible for Hugo that year. Star Wars got a special Hugo for uh, for nineteen for nineteen seventy six, nineteen seventy seven. So we were debating this on the po- on the podcast. Now I'm tying him, uh, skipping Infanti, and we were debating that the, uh, basically, yeah, Star Wars killed. Changed 1970s cinema. They decided, yeah, they they stuck to the Star Wars and things like Logan's Run and stuff before it, like they saw the like, Green. Jaws, you think? I, I don't know. Jaws has got some. I mean, Roy Scheider wasn't a baby when he did that, was he? No, well, but I I I I think that, I mean, I mean, Star Wars has uh, Alec Guinness, but then things just go. Star Wars was 75, so I, I yeah, and it also has um. Uh, who's the vampire guy? <laughs> Which vampire? <laughs> he played uh, the Moff Tarkin. 
Lee. Oh. No, it's Christopher no, Lee. No, 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 it's not Christopher Lee. Lee. Um, yeah, he was in later ones. Right, you're, you're right. You're you're thinking of uh, yeah, Scott. Crap. Him. Yeah. <laughs> that guy. Um, you know. Yeah, we're in, we know who we're talking about. So, um, yeah, I, I would say Peter Cushing. There you go. Um, I would say yeah. So, what do you make of this? Are you underwhelmed by the book uh, compared to the movie? I know Seth, you haven't seen no. it. No. What did you? You like the book, right? I, I read the book. Bu- I read the book first because this was in the early eighties. I had this. Ba- I got this battered used copy of it, just because I was going through every science fiction book I could name. And it's just like this. This is the book that inspired Soil and Green. And I said, okay, I've never, mm-hmm. I haven't seen Soil and Green. I would see it like a couple years later on Channel 11 in New York, but I was like, okay, I've read it. And that's, that's, that's the last time I actually read it. I only read it the once. And some things had stuck out with me at the time, but, but about, one of the weirdest things that stuck out with me was the, the whole stuff in the shipyards with Bill, Billy. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, the water we could possibly need. Um, I, I have something to tell you about that that I thought was kind of interesting. So one of the things that talks about the, the it's it's not exactly the sh- there's the shipyards, but then there's the whole Hudson River, right? Babylon and on the Hudson, says, yeah. Ship town. Right. Yeah, so every, they, they take uh, victory ships and what was the other kind? There's two kinds of ships. There's a victory ships and, um, uh, I don't know, warships. Uh, it, it, basically, they are um, really cheaply manufactured boats that are designed to ship cargo to Europe from World War II, right? Um, in the Battle of the Pacific, it's the, the moving of the cargo and the moving of the tanks and the moving of the people to get to Europe so they can defeat the Nazis. Um, so what's interesting is those those ships are like, they're kind of like a relic of the garbage from World War II, but they're, they're kind of useful in the sense that they can house people on the river there. I would bet that in the 60s, there was a couple of them out there on the Hudson, and that uh, Harry Harrison, he I think he lived in England most of the time, but he must have come back to the States. I know you worked in comics as well. Um, but I, I would guess that it's based on a little bit of reality there. What I can tell you, though, is that uh, those ships are they're still here in B.C. Uh, up, in, up the coast, there is um, uh, a port called Powell River. And as a breakwater, there's a bunch of these ships are, are anchored out in, out in the harbor to prevent giant waves from coming in. Right? <laughs> they block the waves. And when you go by them... They they look like, you know, almost like Roman ruins floating on the mm-hmm. water, because they are they're made of ferro concrete. They're not they're they're not steel. They are concrete, right? So they they don't age in the same way that a regular ship would. You know, rust. There's rust on them, but they're they're basically like rocks. And it's a it's a sort of an eerie you know wreckage from a from an earlier time that it, it really gives the that that gave me a real sense of what a rundown piece of crap world they live in is that that's what people are living on is sort of these these stone relics left over from the 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 sort of the peak of 
output from U.S. factories and shipyards, where they were, you know, just massively spending on on war war supplies. Maybe that's what <laughs> what's wrong with this world is they they don't have enough war, right? That's one of the things that's not mentioned. Is we've seemed to have solved a lot of our economic problems by just having a massive war economy in in times when there isn't even a war, you know? Well, that's kind of one thing that they do in the 1984 is that there's, that's kind of how they keep right. sustained is they're always at war. War is Yeah, the, the population is, the yeah. population is much more under control, and right? It, it, it's managed, it's limited, it's controlled. I mean, yeah, war, war, war as a social con- mechanism of social control. They don't seem to have that in Harrison's world. Harrison's world is, I mean, there's seems to be relative peace. We only hear hear about any conflicts anywhere. We just well, the, Denmark the, the has conflicts are on the Denmark has its well, wall. Well, people, yeah, but, that, but that's all, trying to come in. Yeah, but, but that's, yeah. that's because they're building their own little pocket, uh, quasi utopia, at least not crapsack dystopia. But we don't hear about countries fighting each other. No, it's only internal d- destruction, right? All the people in upstate New York who are, I mean, uh, what, what's so astounding to me again, you know, with Pacific Edge and this, it's, it's about water again, right? Yep. We're and back, back water, water again. Abs- absolutely waters. Uh, we've, you know, been hearing it for years and years and years, but it's sort of coming into its own now that, you know, with California mm-hmm. almost out of water. Yeah. The groundwater's been completely tapped. New York's water, right? They're saying that they've been draining the uh, fossil water, yep. so oh, the seawater's filling their their it. groundwater. Yep. Um, their their pipelines getting destroyed by terrorists in upstate New York, right? So they run out of water in the city. It's like, how is it? The only thing that we're missing from this is fracking, right? Right. Is you know just corrupting the water table, right? Um. Um, I'd, I'd like to. Maybe we can talk about it once it's out and the audiobook is out and we can do it. Maybe this month's down the road, uh, Paolo Bacigalupi's forthcoming The Water Knife, which oh, really right. goes, which goes deeply into these issues from what I understand. I, I, I'm dying to read it. And yeah, I think, I, I think that could be something we could listen to mm-hmm. down the road when the audiobook comes out. Hopefully there will be an audiobook because it's clearly will. in, it's in already a on pre-order on Audible. Uh, Oh, there, there, there you are then, because it's clear, clearly in the same sort of vein as Pacific Edge and Make Room, Make Room, and all these books we seem to be doing lately about resource mm. depletion, including and especially water. And then now it's finally well, hitting the real world, just maybe a little later than people expected, but it's hitting hard. Well, I, I don't, I don't normally, you know, say, you know, we got to follow up immediately with a theme, but I, I wanted to tell you guys about this book I mentioned at the beginning, um, Robert Block's uh, novel, which I uh, for, forgot the title of. It's, it's This Crowded Earth. It's from 1958. It's only four hours long, uh, which is very short. Um, and I started listening to it, and I was like, hey, you know what? This is the same story. <laughs> I, and I, I didn't do it on purpose. What happened was I was listening to... Uh, some Heinlein um, video that I had put up, I, I found on YouTube and then re-put up so I could post it. Um, and uh, it was actually Heinlein and Clark talking about uh, what a great day it was because it, it was the landing of um, 
the first Apollo mission. Uh, you guys should check that video out if you haven't. It's pretty amazing to to see Heinlein and Clark in the same video. Mm. They're on different sides of the United States, which is awesome because, of course, Clark invented the satellite that allows them to <laughs> to do that technology. Um, and Heinlein's the guy who you know completely describes how to actually do a moon landing. Um, and they talk about both of those things in the video. Again, a bunch of old people in primetime television. Um, not something you see anymore. That's fantastic. That is. Um, yeah. You know, I, I mean, that's the thing is Ron Paul, right? I'm not a big fan of American politicians. Um, I think Ron Paul would be pretty awful for domestic U.S. policy. Um, just like pretty much everybody's been awful for U.S. domestic policy. However, he would be wonderful for me because his... <laughs> His foreign policy would be good. He'd say, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do any of that. Uh, and he'd yeah, completely stay out yeah. of it. Be- I'm not saying Rand Paul. I'm oh, saying okay, Ron okay, Paul. Okay, I thought you were saying Rand. Rand seems to be walking not, back that. Yeah, yeah, of course. It's to be more, that's, more palatable. That's a, different, that's a different story. But yeah, so, but see, Ron Paul, he's, he can't do it. He's too old. He has to put on fake eyebrows, and then that's, <laughs> he's still too old. Right? Because this this love of youth culture is basically saying we don't love intelligence, right? I mean, even even John Stewart's show is all about making fun of Grandpa when they talk about you know the senators from Arizona. What's his John name? McCain. The one, John McCain. Yeah. John McCain. Right. So he he ran for president. He's too old. Everybody says, yeah, okay, but you you understand that the word senator comes from the same root as senior, yes. right? It's old, wise people who've been around a long time and sort of know how things work, and maybe they've accumulated some wisdom in the fact that they somehow survived, uh, you know, 50 or so years. And now what do we get is we get the culture of young. Now, I'm not a Hillary fan, but the fact that she's old, I think, means she might lose the election. She is really old. In yeah, and, and there's already been intimations on from some on the right about that she's too old for the job. It's like, what, really, her? We, we had Ronald Reagan. What? We, we had Ronald Reagan. We had George H. W. Bush. Like, yeah, I, I'm not seeing this. Well, I, I am seeing it, I, but I, I'm seeing it from the perspective of that's the culture we live in now, where old people are shuffled off to the old folks home right they are not at the at the core of of you know giving us lectures about how we should yeah. try and value our reality in the right way anymore because you know even if you you look at a really you know high quality program these days they really show me one that has an old guy on it right i was watching um that great new daredevil show mm-hmm. Have you guys seen I, that I've, Netflix I show? I haven't seen it yet, but I've heard about. Oh, it is it is fabulous. Way better. Don't, don't bother with the the Avengers movies. This is much more like a real comic book. Beautiful to look at. It's you know it's it's got all sorts of things going in its favor. It's got one old person in. She's the bad guy, right? So she's you know old Chinese lady uh, who kicks ass. But whatever, that's fine. Um, but the thing is, is just you know old chinese lady as a stereotype for uh for you know the kind of person she's playing the you know i don't know tong leader or something that's fine but 
there is no old person in the rest of the show. Everybody's young. And that's a really good show. So you can make good stuff with only young people in it, right? But there's nothing that's like Kiefer Sutherland's too old now. <laughs> and he's not even that old, right? He can't he can't do twenty four and he's too old now. Yeah. The I am culture of worshipping youth is insane and it's nobody's seeing it, I don't think. It was in the one of the, the endearing things about this book was that um Am I breaking up? A little bit. Maybe. Hmm. Anyway. One of the endearing things about this book was the um, the character of Saul and his his kind of reminiscences about the old days. That that scene with the cigar where where she brings the cigars and he's like, "Oh, they're dried out. It's okay. I'll show you how to fix this." And I think that's mm-hmm. what made, even though Andy in particular is not a great character overall, his his friendship with Saul kind of redeemed him a little bit. And Cheryl's friendship that she built with him. There was at least Absolutely. a little bit of that deference it's to the it's old age. Beautiful. Um, uh, you know, the relation that relationship doesn't exist in the movie, but honestly, I mean, it's got some of those most almost homoerotic scenes. Um, when when Saul's dying, um, you know, they each say they love each other, and it's it's not like hinted at. It's it's boldly stated, and I I think you know the argument that they're you know, gay lovers, I think is bullshit. I think it's just humans, like, being nice to other humans and actually caring about other humans that they're yeah, not it, even yeah, related to. it's a bromance, to. Not, not to denigrate that term. It, it, it's, it's a bromance, not a no, bromance. <laughs> bromance is not the right word for it either, because that's too young to yeah, use. You're, you're, you're right. This, this, <laughs> this, these are people who have lived together long enough. In the book, they make, kind of make explicit they didn't like each other at first. It was, it was, it was, it was a sharing the apartment of convenience that they've slowly grown to like each other. But yeah, in the movie, they decided to dispense mm-hmm. with that. It's more like they're partners. They're, they're, and they are partners because so, so, yeah, yes, Soul's working for them and they do things for each other. And Soul cooks once he steals the food. Yeah. So yeah, I, I like that better than the book in some ways because it's, I, I mean, mean, I think it's, 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 I'm not saying that the book's worse than the movie. It's not. I think that the, the movie, allows for everything in the book and also allows for a growth out of it into what could only be seen in the movie. I think a straight adaptation would be pretty weak. Yeah, if you try to make this to a miniseries, yeah. It just doesn't... I mean, one of the things that is in the book is that, you know, that wire we mentioned, the barbed wire. Um, It's not real great technology. It's just designed to control the people. And they also have water trucks. I guess that's seawater or whatever they're spraying on people because they don't want to waste the no, regular no, water. No, the, no, they are using regular water because they talk, because they there, talk about they have so little supply of it. And I thought, I thought uh, that's odd. Why are you using regular water for that? It's effective. But well, it's, again, the, the movie improves on it, right? They've got the scoops. They got the scoops. Use, and, much, use that river sewage water instead. Nope. They, they say in yeah, the book, the, you can't do that because you poison everyone. Well, that's uh, the thing is, is, is that in the book, there's a humanity that is not present in the, I mean, that's why I think Harry Harrison can't have thought of this, right? Is that it's so obvious if you're sort of looking at it from a cynical, corrupt way, but actually the world inside the book is not corrupt. Everybody's sort of doing their best. The senators, um, the senator who's trying to get that bill passed um, for, uh, you know, the birth control. Yeah. 
they've been trying to push that through, right? And they've got problems. They've got religious fanatics who are they're fighting against to do it, but they're trying to get the right thing done, right? The, there's no corruption. The boss says, get to work, right? Um, the people upstairs, you know, the people who employ me tell me, you've got to get this done. And why is that? It's not because there's some plot that they, you know, they got to figure out. It's because, you know, a crime's got to be investigated. And yeah, there's sort of influence in the fact that he's a rich guy that got killed rather than a poor guy. But the fact that, uh, you know, it's not, it's not part of a further plot, you know, machination size it is in the movie is, is about the sense of sort of lack of corruption. The fact that they get that squad order, which I think is a hilarious yeah. concept, and it's enforced by the, the very uh, honest, uh, apologetic bodyguard. Uh, yeah. Right. The bodyguard in the movie is corrupt and he's actually, you know, behind part of the plot to kill uh to kill the guy. Um that it it's like that reversal. So um we have a humane world inside of Make Room Make Room and we have an inhumane world in Soylent Green. But they're the same world just sort of from you know, a, a human—it's like one guy's the cynical, um, <laughs> cynical Hollywood sort of uh, Chinatown version of reality, and the other one's like the—I don't know—he's earnest, the Danish, the, yeah, the, the Danish um, national healthcare system version of reality. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because yeah, in the movie they say no one tries it anymore. Saul says no one gives cares anymore. In the book, they're doing. Their their efforts are failing miserably, but they're trying. Damn it! It does it just. I mean, there's a futility to the trying in the in the book, but they are trying in the movie. No one cares. Everyone's corrupt, and no no one's no one no one's giving a crap anymore. And in the end, even Saul, who seems to be a, a lone uh, a lone voice against against what's happening in the movie, he decides, okay, I'll finally go home. That scene, that scene where he, he sees, you know, he sees the food. They, apparently that scene was improvised and I think it's an amazing scene. Uh, with the eating scene where they, first they start, they start eating the oh, lettuce. Oh yeah. And Eston's <laughs> like, lettuce? I don't, I don't know if I like this stuff. Right? <laughs> yeah. And then they, they start eating the apples and, uh, Saul can't eat the apples because he has false right. teeth, right? <laughs> so he has to cut it. And Heston's like, yum, yum. And then the next thing you see is Heston's, he's pulling out just the, He's eating the entire apple except for the stem. Yeah, right? he ate the core. Yeah. Oh, man. He ate the core and all the seeds because <laughs> it's so good. But I think slightly before that, um, you, you also see like a piece of celery, sort of unhealthy looking celery. And, oh, my God, it's beef. And when Saul sees the beef, he starts crying. Oh, man. But he's not crying in joy. He's crying as, you know, in the... What's been lost. Oh, my God. I'm crying over fucking beef. Right? How did we get to this? I think that's what the power of of the film is. It's it's so iconic. And like I was saying, you know, people treat it like a joke. Soylent Green is people. Ha, ha, ha. Million memes. But um, do we really want to go there? Because... To me, I, I see this film as, you know, it's very, it's one of those, you know, like Silent Running. It's one of these 70s films that is incredibly powerfully about 
uh, a big actual problem in our actual reality. And Hollywood used to do those movies, right? They used to be, you know, big environmental sort of propaganda pieces saying, look, we're fucking ruining the rivers. We're killing all the birds. We're, we're, we're destroying the world. We're overpopulating. Now, the movies they choose to remake are the ones not with those themes. They're the just sort of the, you know, aliens invading the earth. I'm going to punch his face Or, in, or, right? or you like, get the day after tomorrow, which is about global <laughs> warming, but it's kind of weird and twisted and action-packed-y. Yeah. Or what was that 2012 one where they just said, yeah. okay, you know, we know how stupid, we know how stupid our audience is. Let's just go with it. And I mean, <laughs> the thing is, is it's a comedy, right? I, I really enjoyed 2012 because I was watching it and I said, holy shit, this is a joke. Right, because he's he's driving under a, uh, a a collapsing building, and it takes like fifteen minutes for him to drive through this collapsing building. <laughs> yeah, it, it's like, it, mm. yeah. How does the roof of this limousine get, keeps getting scraped uh, every five seconds by the collapsing building? This slowly collapsing. It, it's it's it, okay, and then the earth completely collapses underneath him. It's like okay, and he jumps the Grand Canyon. <laughs> His limousine is like. Okay, it's a joke. It's a, it's making fun of all the, but the thing is, is the regular audience, not me, because I'm special and much above everybody else, apparently, they just think it's a fun movie. And yeah, they don't I, see it as sort of a, an indictment of all the other stupid movies that are exactly like this. The ideas and, are in service of the special effects, not the other way around. Yeah. Well, let's have a collapsing building without considering what what that actually is. It's, it's like, it's like they took the notes from, uh, you know, all the producers and said, you know, we, we should uh, have a, a really good scene where it does this. And they said, yeah, that's fine. Let's just go with that. And I, I think, you know, who's the actor who plays, uh, the role John there? Cusack. Yeah. John Cusack. I really like John Cusack's work. Too. Um, he, you know, sometimes he picks a, a, a clunker, but, um, generally even when he's in a clunker, it's pretty good. Um, cause he's, good. he plays a science fiction author of all things. <laughs> but that's the thing is like when he's reading this, he's saying, yeah, I'm going to go with this. This is hilarious. Right. But <laughs> I think that, I mean, it's, it's such a retarded movie. It takes the most ridiculous premise ever that the world's going to end in 2012. Um, and it, it turns it into the, one of those, you know, like it, it's like the airplane version of, of Airport 76 or whatever, you know, Airport 75. You guys yeah. know Airplane Airplane is like a, a, oh, I love a, re- yeah. a comedic re- remake of a serious yeah. movie. Oh, Probably I didn't know that. Charlton Heston, actually. Yes. Oh, jeez. <laughs> isn't, isn't it isn't it a Charlton Heston movie? Am I right, uh, Paul? Air, Airport, Airport 75? Airport 75. I think, you're, I think you're mixing up. Maybe just Airport. In any case, it's one of those movies where... There's an airplane that's going to crash because the pilots are dead. No, no, so no, airplane no, 475 is, is Charlton Heston. Huh? Well, <laughs> there you go. Wow. You're absolutely right. Um, so airplane, I mean, we think of it as just a standalone classic, but it's making fun oh, oh. of a specific movie and a set of movies came out of the 70s, those disaster movies. And I think 2012 is kind of like that for... Uh, all the other stupid Transformers disaster but, movies that came, but no one realizes that. that it's a it's a parody, and, and they take it as 
That's the tragedy. That's the tragedy. Right? It's, it's apparent. Yeah. Is that it can do really well as a straight up version of all of those things because we've just turned everyone into a complete retard. Somehow. I don't know. I'm sad now. Wait, 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 the other wait, 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 thing that... Wait. Go ahead, Seth. Seth. The other, well, the other thing that, that was jumping out to me about this as being relevant, and you guys can tell me whether I'm right or not, is I've sort of felt like resonances of the what's going on in Baltimore, even if it's not related to race, mm. the, oh, the God, whole yes. riot dynamic and all of that. It just it felt like really between that and the California stuff. I was reading this book, going, "Wow, this is still this is super relevant." It is super relevant. Yeah, the, the, the uses the uses of power, power to control people. I mean, there's no. Real racial element here. Yeah, no. I mean the the one racial element we get in this entire book is between mainland Chinese and Taiwan Chinese. That's the only thing mm. we get because well, yeah, there's a, there's a bit of white white on Chinese racism at the yeah, uh, but not at the, not, not, much. not much at the at the Telegraph office. Yeah. Another sign that we've <laughs> sort of reverted to. Yes. Uh, they don't even have telephones anymore. Come on, this is this is pretty bad. Well, the, the, yeah, the, I mean, the, the, in 1966, I think you'd be hard pressed to get somebody to send you a telegram, unless it was like, you know, I don't know, you're in a hospital. Well, or yeah, they, I mean, yeah, there's no internet. I mean, maybe that technology just fell apart and they've gone back to more reliable stuff. I, I, well, <laughs> consider there's millions of people unemployed in New York. It's probably cheaper to have to have someone run a telegram than to actually maintain the infrastructure to have things like the yeah. internet. That corruption's right in there too, right? The, the, the other kids are saying the kickbacks. You know, it's a ten cent kickback before now. It's a fifteen cent kickback, and uh, oof, it's tough. It's a tough situation. It's, it's, a, it's a tough book. It's a tough movie, but it's it's good medicine in the sense that they're both well done. But you have to you have to you have to accept you have it. To, you have to you, yeah. have to you have to embrace you have to you have to embrace the the soil and green and. Just do the best you can. <laughs> okay, okay, maybe soy yellow because that's made of soybeans. That might be tastier. It's a, a lentils. Lentils, soy lentils, thank and, you. So it's both. Soybeans and lentils. Um, I'm, not, I'm not a soybean eater or a lentil eater. You guys eat those? I like chickpeas. Okay. I, like, I like them all. Edamame, isn't edamame yes. soybeans? Oh, yum. Okay. Okay. Well, it sounds like Seth's not going to be so sad about this world I'll, he's living I'll in. I'll be okay with it. He likes Flappy. Like, I like soy milk. Flappy likes soy milk. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, that's something, that's something not in the book or in the movie, but you could see people drinking soy milk. You in with, the, with your, uh, your cousin or brother who has ten children. And <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, pretty, I'm imagining my apartment. Line up for water. Yeah. And, and hope uh, hope that they don't run out of the uh, uh, Soylent Green on Tuesday. <laughs> well, he hasn't seen the movie yet. He, he, does, he doesn't know I what know. happens when you run out of Soylent Green. He knows everything about the movie, though, because he's grown up in a society where they turn Soylent Green into a joke. I'm going I'm to go watch I, it. I'm this. It's, it's, you know, they make fun of it on Futurama, and they make fun of it on Simpsons, and there's a million or, little or, memes. Or, or even, have you guys seen the uh, Saturday Night Live skit? Where they talk about no. sequel, sequels to Soylent Green, and they, 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 and they have the, all these little scenes, and then they have someone coming in saying it's people because they have Soylent White and Soylent Stooges <laughs> and all sorts of weird things. 
And then in the end, the last <laughs> one they do says, we're, we're going to go oh. back to our roots. And we have Soylent Green 2. It's still people. They didn't change the formula like they said they would. It's still people. <laughs> oh yeah. Hmm. Oh, well. Thank you.